Hello, and welcome back to MinSpeak Moments. In this episode, I'm talking to my friend Debbie Witkowski from Semantic Compaction Systems. She's one of the coordinators and presenters of the Successful Outcomes in AAC Seminar Series, which was formerly known as the Pittsburgh AAC and Language Seminar Series, or PALS for short. She's worked for Semantic Compaction Systems since 2011, but her introduction to MinSpeak came much earlier, back in 1986, when she had the opportunity to tutor a local student to use Word Strategy, the original word-based MinSpeak language system. Debbie has always had a passion for working with individuals with complex communication needs and has spent her career supporting these individuals in various roles. In recent years, she's had the opportunity to be one of the developers of Unidad, the bilingual Spanish-English MinSpeak family of vocabulary programs. So greetings, Debbie, and thank you for joining me. Hi, Russell. So glad to be here. So let's start by finding out a little bit more about yourself and your AAC journey so far. Absolutely. Well, I am a speech language pathologist. And interestingly, when I was choosing a college major, I was sort of torn between speech language pathology and mechanical engineering, which are two very different fields. <laughs> I chose speech pathology because I wanted to help people, but it's not surprising to me that when I first heard about AAC in my undergraduate cerebral palsy course, that I was immediately interested in learning more and in specializing in this aspect of the field, even though technology was really limited at that point. When I went to graduate school, I had the opportunity to work with Bruce Baker, as you mentioned in my intro, to tutor an individual who was one of those beta testing the word strategy system. And then after graduate school, I went to work at an agency that's now known as the Connecticut Department of Developmental Services. And I worked at a residential facility with individuals with intellectual and developmental disabilities. And I was thrown into the fire. I had no education or training about how to work with this population. And I, what I did have was an incredible love for my clients. And I found that we learned together. And after about a year and a half or so, I had the opportunity to take on a new position. It was at the center, I'm sorry, the Connecticut Center for Augmentative Communication. And, and oddly enough, I was the director of that program, the director of a program of one, I will say, <laughs> it was just me. <laughs> but, um, that was definitely an opportunity that came to me because of who I knew, not what I knew, because uh, Bruce Baker opened that door for me. And again, I found myself learning on the job and just threw myself wholeheartedly into learning everything I could about AAC as I served those in the community around me and the school districts around me as, a, as a, in a consultative role. And then in 1994, I decided to branch out on my own and become an independent consultant where I served about half the state of Connecticut for AT and AAC services. And then in 2010, I returned to Pittsburgh and I reconnected with Bruce and I've been working with Semantic Compaction Systems since then. One of the most exciting things that I've gotten to do is really to be a part of the development of the Unidad system. Now that's certainly um, something I think folks would love to hear about. So maybe you could tell us just a little more about the processes that were involved and, and what happened overall in terms of how you went about developing this bilingual vocabulary. 
Sure. So Unidad, for those of you who don't know, is a Spanish-English system with an, both the Spanish side and the English side of the language system or of the, of the MinSpeak application program are fully robust language systems. And it was developed actually out of a project that had nothing to do with AAC. And back in, I would say 2013 or 2014, Bob Conti, who was the vice president of Semantic Compaction Systems and Bruce were looking into other applications in which MinSpeak could be used. And so they were looking at the possibility of using MinSpeak in a way to teach English as a second language. And so we had partnered with some researchers at Fordham University in New York in order to say, how can we truly evaluate whether MinSpeak could be beneficial to teaching English as a second language? And they wanted to start with using it as an AAC tool for their native Spanish speakers in their special education program who also required AAC. And I was thinking, wait a second, that's not what we're trying to do here. And then the light bulb went on and I said, oh my gosh, imagine the power of a bilingual AAC system where the individual had a robust Spanish system at home and then a robust English system at school. And so that's really how Unidad was born. We set about the development process. Bob and Bruce bought, brought in a linguist from the University of Pittsburgh who was also a Spanish speaker. He was not a native Spanish speaker, but he was married to a, a native Spanish speaker and they were raising their children in a bilingual home. And so he was quite fluent in Spanish. And also a linguistic student at the University of Pittsburgh who was fluent in Spanish as well. And so they brought to the table their knowledge of linguistics and their understanding of the Spanish language and the nuances of the language. And I brought my expertise in MinSpeak. And so we made a pretty good team in terms of developing this Unidad system. Tell me a little more about some of the challenges you had in terms of dealing with two different languages but wanting to in as you say marry them together so that uh, whether you were using the english or the spanish there was some commonality in there absolutely so i i should tell you that what we did to to start the project was to to take a look at unity 84 which is an english only minspeak application program and we use that sort of as our launching point or our launching pad. But the goal was really to, as you said, create a system that was pretty seamless in how it interacted and, and how the English interacted with the Spanish. And so one of the first things that we had to do was evaluate the grammatical structures in both languages. And in English, we have seven pronouns and we have five verb tenses plus that two plus verb in a MinSpeak system, meaning that infinitive form. But in Spanish, there are 10 pronouns and there are, gosh, I think that we have 10 verb tenses and there are even more. We didn't get all of them in there. I think that there were two sort of archaic forms that, that didn't even make the cut. But, you know, things like that, or the fact that in English, we have the adjective and then the comparative form and the superlative form, but in Spanish, there is no comparative or superlative. You would just say mas grande, right? It's for bigger. 
but you have the masculine and feminine form and you have the singular and plural form. And so figuring out how to create a system that allowed for both languages to be fully represented on, on their side of the screen, so to speak, while still being able to be mirrored. And I, I don't know if that makes sense or not, but our goal was really that if you knew how to say a word in English, you could figure out pretty easily how to say it in Spanish and vice versa. And so our goal was, for example, the, the verb to sleep in English is the bed plus the verb key. And in Spanish, it's dormir, it's the bed plus the verb key. And so we wanted to, as much as possible, create that that mirroring, or I, I called it transparency between the two languages, while still recognizing that there are significant linguistic differences. For example, in English, we have the verb to be. And in Spanish, there are two verbs, there's ser and there's a star. And so figuring out how to handle that was a challenge. What we did, again, we took that Unity 84 as our, as our launching pad, and then we said, okay, if we were just dealing in English, then our, our verb to be could be this icon plus the verb. But we have two verbs in Spanish. So we paired the icon sequence. I believe we did the family as to be, which is very different than Unity. We did the family in English as to be plus verb. And then in Spanish, it was to be, um, ser was the family plus the verb. And estar, if I'm remembering correctly, was the house plus the verb. And I don't remember that off of the top of my head, but it was another icon sequence. And so although we used Unity 84 as our launching point, more importantly than staying true to Unity 84 was being true English to Spanish. And so if you're a, a therapist or a teacher that's really familiar with Unity 84, you're going to see a lot of it similar, but there are some, some differences. And the reason for it is because we wanted it to make sense in both English and Spanish. One example that comes to mind is the word but, B-U-T in English. You know, in English, in, in Unity, it's conjunction plus bed. But in Spanish, the word but is pero. And it's we we used a pun. We made a conjunction plus dog because pero p e r o is but and p e r r o is dog. And so we we chose to make that the conjunction in both English and Spanish for that for that verb or that word. And I think that's a, another good example of where it isn't just a matter of taking say an English vocabulary and going to Google Translate and popping in some words and at the other end they pop out in any other language that is uh, homologous to English, but you really have to understand the workings of the language, not just in terms of the meanings and the syntax, but even the sounds, as you said there, there's a good example where it's the sound of the word that was important. Right, that's right, that's right. You know, it's interesting, in the in the usage of verbs as well you talk about translating one word to another and i'm reminded and this is the example that always comes to mind of the verb to drink in english the verb to drink in english is the juice plus the verb but in spanish you know the tra the direct translation of drink would be beber however 
there's a word that's used more frequently, that's used more frequently in the context of drinking. And that's the word that translates to take or tomar. And so when we are programming the vocabulary, I was so grateful for the for the understanding of the language that came from the two linguists on the team who said, no, we're not going to put beber there because tomar is much more frequently used to say, I'm going to take a drink rather than saying I'm drinking. And so in unity English, it's juice plus verb is to drink in unity in unidad, I'm sorry, in unidad Spanish, it is juice plus verb is tomar and then juice plus juice plus verb is beber because we still wanted to provide access to that word but it's not the highest frequency so not all words will directly translate into an absolute equivalent in another language they may well have two variants or maybe three variants as you said the classic yes. one there is the to be verb which actually has two variations in uh, in spanish and as you say taking a drink there as opposed to having a drink or drinking is very different. Absolutely, absolutely. And what did you use in order to help you determine what vocabulary to use other than just straight translating the words you had in English? I'm guessing that you had to do some uh, work behind the scenes to check things like frequencies, etc. Yes, yes, absolutely. With the development of Unity, we know that that was developed based on word frequency studies. And so what we found was that there was not a great deal of information in terms of word frequency data in Spanish. And the original study that we have, we actually, Bruce had provided that resource. And I honestly don't remember off the top of my head what that resource was, but it was a database of words based on word usage and frequency that was derived from internet news sources. And so it was a very adult-like and very formal vocabulary. And so things that were making the top 500, let's say, were words like government and elected and political and things that, you know, you wouldn't see in a, <laughs> in a unity <laughs> system per se, but these were our data. And so we were like, well, we're going to get this vocabulary in here. So in one sense, I find that the the Unidad vocabulary, both English and Spanish, because we paralleled them where we could, is, is fairly robust. Now, thankfully, after some work on, on this project, we did discover Mark Davies, a frequency of vocabulary use in Spanish, with a frequency dictionary of vocabulary in Spanish. And that was hugely helpful. That gave us the top 5,000 words in Spanish based on frequency. And so we were able to go in and fill in some holes that we hadn't originally realized that we had. And then actually a third source was working with Gloria Soto out of San Francisco State University. She's a special education professor out there, and she was very instrumental in helping me to fill in additional gaps based on her research of early vocabularies of, of, Spanish, of native Spanish speakers. And so not necessarily what we would consider to be core, but what are those words that children are, are using first in their language in Spanish? So based on the trials and tribulations that you had to go through putting together this application, and we should probably also mention that it's not, you also have variants other than 84 locations? Yes, yes, that's right. Uh, we have 28 locations, 36 locations, 60 locations, and 84 locations. One of the things that we're very intentional about 
was making sure that the patterns for accessing vocabulary were consistent across the system. So what is a little bit different than what you might find in Unity in those systems with fewer keys is that all of the verbs in Unidad are accessed through an icon and then a part of speech key, or same thing with the adjectives. Whereas, you know, in a Unity system, you may find an extra page of verbs or an extra page of, of adjectives. And so we tried to maintain that consistency of, of patterns for, for that predictability of vocabulary retrieval. There is not currently a one-hit version. It's only sequenced at this point, but we are talking about developing a one-hit version. And I would say probably for all of those forms, all of those versions, 28, 36, 60, and 84. Awesome. And going back to where I started there, talking about trials and tribulations, if someone were to be trying to develop bilingual systems out in the field, uh, from scratch, which is, as you say, is a very difficult job. But if people are doing it, what sort of tips or hints or suggestions might you have to give them um, in order to make their life a little easier? Oh, that's a really good question. I would say don't try to do it by yourself to have somebody who really knows the language and honestly, to go beyond even a, a native speaker, but to somebody, if you can, if you can tap into somebody as a resource at a university or you know somebody who really understands the nuances of the language, that that would be a really smart way to go about it so that you're not, you know, otherwise you're going to end up with those, as you said before, those translations where we're just popping vocabulary in and maybe not choosing the correct word. With Unidad, we had to make some decisions based on, um, on word frequency, but word frequency varies by region. And so, for example, the word to walk in English could be caminar or it could be andar. And so we had to make a choice. Now, the choice that we made might be really good for those native Spanish speakers who come from a Puerto Rican background, but for somebody coming from a Mexican background, they may have needed Andar. And so really understanding not just the language, but even the sort of the colloquial use of vocabulary for that individual and where they're from or where their family is from and their language is born out of is really important. Okay, some good useful tips there. Uh, but I, I do take away the very important one you have there, which is make sure you have a team. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so let's move on just a little bit and find out a little bit more about you and the sort of things you're doing and the sort of things you have done. Is there one thing that you wish you would have known earlier on when you began your career? Yes, there's lots of things <laughs> I wish I had known when I began my career. You know what, something that we've been talking a lot about in the field lately, maybe in the last several years or so, is this, you know, we first said we're presuming competence, and now we say that we're presuming potential, which just means that every person, we're going to make the assumption or presumption that they have the capacity to learn. And I wish that I had known about that concept and the fact that there are no cognitive prerequisites to using AAC when I got started in the field, when I first started my career, because I feel like there were several people that were underserved by me because I didn't know that they had the capability to learn communication and I, and I sold them short. 
now pushing even further there so i just made you uncomfortable by saying what what <laughs> did you know and how did you do that it's always interesting to ask people whether they have any memorable failures you don't have to list them but you know is there any time when you think you've, you've done something terribly wrong and then what did you learn from it well i think that's such a great question because we we do our greatest learning i think from our own failures um I can think of many again, but I would say, sadly, one of my most memorable failures is that I let someone talk me into the fact that MinSpeak was too hard for people with cognitive disabilities. <laughs> and so I, I steered away from it for a long time and, and, and it caused me to really not work with MinSpeak for a season. And then I thought, well, that was bad information. As, as I learned more, I was like, that was really bad information because that's really not the case. And so I was able to start supporting my clients better when I when I understood that my clients with cognitive challenges could learn and speak. I'd say the second was more of a client-specific fail. He had uh, complex physical needs. He was an individual with cerebral palsy, and he was non-speaking. And he had gone, I lived in Connecticut, he had gone up to a rather famous evaluation center in a different part of New England. And he was there for one session. And the recommendation came back that he should have a head tracking system for access. And so the family was actually quite wealthy. They bought, you know, the mouth, the system, the head tracking, everything that that this young man needed. But that was not the right recommendation. My my role in the in the fail of this was that because of the reputation of the evaluator, I spent far too long trying to help this client to be able to use head tracking when the reality was that he could not. And once we were able to back off from head tracking and say, let's consider other methods of access, he just really took off. And so I regret having just taken the word of somebody else that I thought was more experienced than me. But what I learned from that is two things. One, you have to also trust your own instincts. And two, that you cannot get all the information you need in a single snapshot or a single vision, uh, a single visit with a client. And going back a little bit to what you said earlier about you know one of the things that you felt was a, a bit of a miss was thinking that MinSpeak, for example, was uh, far too difficult and then you, you didn't do anything about it. What are some of the best resources that you've found during your career that, that have helped you get around things like that? Not, so, not necessarily just about MinSpeak, but what sort of resources have you found have helped you throughout your career to develop to become more of the clinician you are? I would say just really getting into some really good trainings, going to conferences like ATIA or AAC specific workshops that were coming into my areas, you know, coming to me instead of me going to them, but really tapping into colleagues, tapping into people that have more experience than I did and not being afraid to ask the questions and not being afraid to ask for help. And those I would say were just really good resources. And I know those aren't really specific <laughs> but I would say, honestly, one of the things, and this, I joined the, the PALS team, the Pittsburgh AAC language seminar series, after about 20 some years of being in the field. And I'm not taking any credit for the PALS content because that was developed by Bruce Baker. But just attending that was such a great 
learning experience for me. And then I got to, of course, be part of it and to help develop a little bit of it. But he just painted a picture of AAC in a way that I had never heard before. And so I would say that was really one of the the best training opportunities or best resources that I had the opportunity to partake in. And being a bit more specific there, can you think of maybe three people, you've mentioned Bruce there, but can you think of three people who you feel have been most influential in your development of uh, AAC skills and knowledge? Yes, yes, actually, I would have to list Bruce as, as number one, even though I've been talking about him throughout this session. He really taught me the importance of teaching language and not just focusing on functional communication. And so just that there's a significant difference between, you know, being able to express your wants and needs and being able to answer questions than there is in being able to be fully linguistic. And so he really taught me about that. I would say that Gail Van Tatenhove has been a tremendous influence on my career, even from the earliest days. I met Gail before I graduated from my master's program, and then she had come up to Connecticut, and I had attended a workshop or two early in my career, and she just had such wisdom. And I can still remember from 30-some years ago, some of those little nuggets of wisdom that she planted in my head. I just consider her to be a master clinician and I will, I will steal ideas from her all day long. <laughs> I'll, I'll give her credit for them, but I, I will just glean from her all day long. And uh, she really has had an impact on, you know, from early on, even up till now, because I consider her a colleague now and we have the opportunity to work together and I'm still gleaning from her. And then third, I would say just in terms of my work with Unidad, I would say that Gloria Soto has been a really strong influence in a number of different ways, but really a great support in helping to refine Unidad. It was developed before I met her. I think it was even released before I met her, but she was so gracious and saying, hey, let's think about this in a slightly different way. And so there have been several iterations of Unidad <laughs> from its inception. But I feel like it was her direction that really got us to the point where it is now. Now, you've just given us three people there who have influenced you. And now I'm going to give you the opportunity to express a little bit of how you might be able to influence other people. So the people would say, oh, I was influenced by Debbie Witkowski. She did X, Y and Z. But um, in order to do that, what, what sort of advice would you give to someone who's wanting to pursue a career similar to yours? Somebody who's just new to the field, they're listening to this, and they want to know what Debbie recommends that they should be doing in order to uh, improve their uh, practical skills, basically. Well, you know what? I'm going to take a page out of my own playbook from way back when, when somebody told me that MinSpeak was not something that you could use with people with complex uh, you know, cognitive disabilities. And the page is to not take the word of somebody, but learn for yourself. And that sounds funny because the second thing that I'm going to say is to seek out mentors who have a wealth of experience right. and to learn as much as you can. But I guess that what I really want to convey is that once you've learned something from somebody, go ahead and, and test that out for yourself. Don't take it as gospel. Like if somebody said, when you're modeling on an AAC system, don't speak. 
that's really not good advice. <laughs> and so you might want to say, let me learn a little bit more about modeling and make sure that this is the way I should do it before I actually put that into practice. So I would say just seek out mentors who have a wealth of experience, learn as much as you can, not just about the AAC systems, not just about the tool, but about how to teach language and help your clients to develop communicative competence. So go to conferences, take courses, ask questions, and never stop learning. Excellent. And you know, now I'm just going to give you an opportunity to uh, debunk one myth in AAC that you feel that needs to be debunked or consistently debunked, because I, I think we'll find over time that the same myths pop up over and over. But what would you say is, is one that you particularly would like to debunk? No, I'm sure this isn't this myth is not in <laughs> in Romsky's article. And so I don't know if we could even consider it a myth. But I would say I want to debunk that notion that men speak is too hard because it's such an incredibly rich language system. And it's actually very predictable to use once you understand the architecture. And the most powerful aspect of it, in my opinion, is beyond the language system and how robust that is, is that that single page design. It's like typing on a keyboard. And once an individual has used it consistently, they can develop motor plans and that leads to automaticity. And the beauty of that is, just like you and I don't have to think about where the keys are when we're typing and all of our cognitive resources are devoted to what we wanna write. When our clients reach that point of motor automaticity, which is not hard to do, then accessing the words becomes a subconscious activity. And then their cognitive resources are freed up to focus on what they wanna say and in the engagement of the interaction. Okay, well, thanks for that one. And we're almost at the end here, but I'm going to give you a little more opportunity to maybe reveal a little bit more about yourself in terms of some choices, because I'm going to go into a little slot called my three C's, which is where I ask guests to make recommendations related to culture, courses and clinical practice. And so the first one is I'm going to ask you in relation to culture, if there's any book or album or movie that you would recommend to people. Well, I'm an avid reader and I love historical fiction. I've been reading a lot of historical fiction lately. And one of the books that I've really loved and actually have recommended to colleagues is a book called The Things We Cannot Say by Kelly Rimmer. It's a story that sort of takes place in current day. And it also reflects back to um, the main character, the protagonist's grandmother and her life in Poland during World War II. And this woman has a, a son who's autistic and he uses what she calls in the story, the AAC or his AAC. And then her grandmother loses the ability to speak because she's had a stroke. And so, as I said, the book sort of goes between this modern day events or current day events where the protagonist is dealing with, you know, managing how to help her son and support her son to learn and to communicate. And now sort of trying to figure out how to help her grandmother to communicate all the while her grandmother has this rather urgency about her, has this urgency about her in terms of trying to convey something and she can't. And so as the story winds back and forth between current day and, and World War II times, you see how it evolves and, and, and winds and it's really a beautiful story. Okay, cool. 
And other than the successful outcomes in AAC seminar, which we might be accused of being biased for, uh, is there any particular course or conference or event that you would recommend people should really try and get to? You know, I have always found ATIA to be a great conference because it is focused on technology and there is a lot of um, AAC knowledge to be gained. I personally find the exhibit hall to be overstimulating, so that's not part of what I do when I go to ATIA, but I just, I have certain people that I love to learn from. And um, for example, Karen Kangas, who's an OT, who's worked with kids with complex bodies. I always try to get into one of her sessions. I always try to get into any sessions that Gail's doing or, or Caroline Musselwhite might be doing. So it, it's an opportunity to come together with those people that I view are the, the experts and to learn from them. I also really love, this is not a conference, but it's a um, something that's available on YouTube and it's the Comprehensive Literacy for All Book Study. Comprehensive Literacy for All was a book that was written by Karen Erickson and David Bugelman, I believe, and they um, did a, a series of YouTube sort of tutorials. And so I think that that's just a really good resource for people who want to support our AAC users who also need to develop literacy skills. And finally, how about a, uh, a really good tip for folks in order to encourage them to use best practice? You know, my tip would be to begin with the end in mind. Mm -hmm. We always want our clients to develop the language to the fullest extent possible. Our goal is for them to develop snug or spontaneous novel utterances. And so if you start with the end in mind and provide your client with the most robust system that, that you can, then you're gonna be working to maximize their potential and you'll get to that end. Um, Amanda Soper is a speech pathologist in DC who works with kids with complex bodies. And I remember her saying during a presentation that you wanna provide systems that children will grow into, not grow out of. And that was just a really profound way of putting it in my mind. Um, just sort of this very simple eye-opening, yes, of course, right? And so when you're presuming potential and you have this long-term plan because you've thought about where you want to end up, then your device recommendation will be one that supports that plan. And so in the last couple of minutes, uh, in a sentence or two, what do you want folks to take away from what you've said today? Oh, gosh. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. Um, I guess I would... Two quick things. I'm going to go back to presume potential for all of your clients. If our clients aren't learning, it's not because they can't learn. It's because we haven't figured out how to teach that specific client yet. And so our job is to figure out how we can teach this client. And that our goal is really to help people to say what they want to say, how they want to say it, and to develop language and teach language for our clients is the way that we enable them to do that. And finally, how can people contact you with comments or questions? Feel free to email me at dwitkowski at minspeak.com. That's D-W-I-T-K-O-W-S-K-I at minspeak.com. Alrighty, well, Debbie Witkowski from Semantic Impaction Systems, thank you ever so much for spending this time here. I hope uh, folks have enjoyed it and hopefully we can get you back on but some other time to share some more of your knowledge and wisdom. 
It would be my pleasure. Thanks so much for having me. And that's another in the bag.